Ron Rosedale, in the news recently have been news items that have to do with bone. And I'm wondering if you can help me with this. Shall I say what the three questions are that I have? Sure. Okay, calcium supplements have been in the news recently, which people take to make their bones strong, but they've been associated with an increased risk of heart attacks and cardiovascular problems. Also, drugs designed to strengthen bones are in some cases leading to an increased risk of some kind of bone fractures, especially in the thigh bone. Rare, but it's documentable. And the third is that more and more evidence is showing that hormones may influence healthy bones. More than taking calcium, hormones. And healthy bones may influence hormones, such as insulin and leptin, meaning sick bones may increase the risk of diabetes and messing up the leptin signals can mess up your bones. And nothing surprising. Well, before we get into how you would answer those questions, plus I'm also thinking of a young man who has a disease where his bones are very thin and they're very prone to breaking. And maybe in looking at these more newsworthy topics, we'll figure out something to do for this young man. So let's, let's just start by talking about bones because I happen to pick up this. Well, actually, I'll start with this. I brought with me two show-and-tells that are bones. And these are soup bones for cooking. You know, they're the kind of bones that you can give to dogs that they love to chew on. Mm -hmm. And one thing that struck me, I mean, if you look at this one that's cooked, is it mostly bone or is it mostly hollow? Uh, The one that's cooked, I'd say it's about half of each. It's mostly hollow, I would say, if I had to do volume. This is trabecular bone, so... There'd be more air than bone in this piece. Well, that's right. We think of bones as as these very strong, sturdy things, but even this, which I'm guessing was maybe a a cow's thigh bone or something Mm -hmm. like that. And probably would not be considered osteoporotic at all. It's it's got this thick outer kind of bark that's the bone, but most of what you'd see that you'd think is solid is actually a hole in the middle. That's the cooked one where the hole in the middle has been Mm -hmm. taken out. But this, this bone here has not been cooked. Yeah, in so-called Paleolithic times, this would be a real gourmet feast. You know, I've heard that, that in Paleolithic time and in hunter-gatherer cultures, they love to eat the marrow of a bone. Yeah. Some of the scientists who study such things uh, have proposed a theory as how uh, brains might have evolved. And, and one of those is as brains evolved and became a little bit smarter and uh, human ancestors were scavengers smart enough to know not to compete with lions and tigers for a kill they'd let the lions and tigers kill have their fill and then try and eat what was left over as we became a bit smarter and and uh, more adept at the use of tools we could break open bones and what was left is the commodity that is revered in, in in animal cultures and that is fat so is that what's inside of this bone mainly yeah. is is fat it's mostly fat bone marrow is 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 very high in fat the mediterranean diet right in a bone marrow it's mostly monounsaturated fat and a lot of other good nutrients so it's very a very nutritious meal also some protein so bone marrow is 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 an excellent meal for especially a scavenger to, to have something like that left over. Our ancestors may have become more 
human-like because they could crack open a bone and eat the inside of it when other creatures couldn't get to it because they used tools. I wonder how long ago that could have happened. Could it have been 2 million years ago? Could it have been 15 million years ago? Probably longer than 2 million years ago. Probably not as long as 15 million years ago. I think it's a pretty good range right there. Somewhere between 15 and 2 million years ago as we evolved a bigger brain. The 15 million year, it's an interesting moment because it is a time where primates lost some ability to process, I think, uricase. Hmm. And it's a possibility that it was just a random mutation that gave them more ability to store fat, fructose. Or it's also, I've always wondered when I've heard that though, whether if there were primates that had gone to Europe and then they got caught in an ice age kind of cold, if some of them survived because they ate bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And if they ate bone marrow and fats, maybe that ability to process some of the byproducts of eating a lot of fruit, because they were fruit-eating primates that went north, Mm -hmm. maybe they lost that ability to process fruits because they were eating so much bone marrow, they didn't need it anymore. Yeah, Yeah, bone marrow is a great meal, and I think it perhaps initiated a very beneficial cycle where the more bone marrow they were able to acquire uh, as they got smarter, the smarter they got <laughs> because they're able to fuel then the, uh, the very uh, high energy needs of a growing brain. Well, that's a question that would take some paleoanthropologist whoever's to figure out, but we'll just leave that as a question for now that you're saying that this is actually pretty nourishing stuff here yeah. in the middle, but I'll bet that's not why this animal made this stuff in the middle of its bone. It didn't just make it so that we could eat it someday. Oh, I don't think any animal makes anything so that somebody else can eat it. Uh, well, maybe bees make honey. <laughs> no, I don't think they made marrow for us to eat. Why do our bones, instead of being hard, why do our bones have this stuff in the middle of them? Well, the typical function of bone marrow is to make red and white blood cells. And uh, as a very good energy store, to fuel the constantly replicating cells that are necessary for that animal's life. Why did they make it inside of our bones? Because they can. (laughs) More than anything, it's a good place for it. I think nature likes to have dual uses. It's also very well protected. So it's a very well protected place to make very, very vital components of our physiology. The immune system is extremely important. Making blood, red cells, is extremely important. And so this is a very safe place to make it uh, that is kind of out of the way. So it's out of the way, it's in a safe place that is avoiding free radicals and all of those insults. Does it make bone any stronger to have it be solid, or is it just fine to have something in the middle of it like that? I think one of the major endeavors of any type of architecture is to weigh strength versus weight. And it could certainly be solid, you could make bone solid, but it then would be much heavier, which would entail greater musculature to stand upright. Uh, It it wouldn't be a a very architecturally sound way of making any type of structure. You know, we could make a building, a house, with, you know, a solid framework, but instead, you know, they have two by sixes or two by fours to hold up a frame. 
that's hollow in the middle, you know, very much like our bones, so that it is a good balance between strength and weight. Well, you know, when you just said hollow in the middle, it reminded me of this book I have here called Inside the Body. It has these beautiful pictures that start out showing things like the skeleton and what different bones look like in the skeleton, and then it gets closer and closer to the actual bone cells. And at some point, it actually shows the structure of bone cells. And one thing that's quite amazing to look at with these is that bone cells, side by side, they have all this hard stuff around them, but the bone cell starts with a hollow core. Even the cell starts with a hollow core. Aren't those beautiful? Yeah, they are beautiful. Nature's incredibly wise. That's why I think we really have to listen to nature, both in, in healing and treating people, uh, listen to what nature does, what nature's ideas for healing, for structure, for life, and then don't fight them, go along with them. Looking at these pictures where there's a hollow center and then lots of layers of hardness around them reminds me of a story you told me about how nature also doesn't say, someday we need creatures that have bones in them, so let's plan to make bones. You told me once that bones really started because sea organisms were spitting out a lot of calcium. Sea creatures started out just being soft-bodied animals that had a lot of calcium to spit out. It's not that they even wanted to make shells. They just wanted to spit out calcium. And in a way, it, it almost looks like in our bone cells that spitting out of calcium is still going on, that there's a hollow center, and then there's all this hardness around them. Can you tell the story about seashells? Hmm. Yeah, a, a simplified version of, of evolution, how life came to be as it is. We're fairly certain that life started as single-cell organisms. I'll begin there. We could start even earlier, but that's close enough. And as cells divided, they formed colonies of cells, you know, families of cells that were fairly identical. But from this very, very early age, it was critical that once, uh, once life began, once life evolved, one of the requisites of staying alive was to get rid of calcium. Not to acquire calcium, but actually to get rid of it. That cell biologists to this day will know that if cells start accumulating calcium on the inside, if calcium levels start rising on the inside, and if intracellular calcium, if inside the cell calcium isn't kept extremely low, cells start dying. And so this began almost at the beginning of life. So cells started excreting calcium, and as you had colonies of cells grouping together, and they all were excreting calcium, it would mix with certain elements in the oceans and precipitate, form rocks, <laughs> you know, like kidney stones, you might say. These rocks then would form adjacent to these colonies of cells. And nature is quite smart, and all animals are, are, are quite smart, and they have to be, or you're not going to survive in a world that is not easy to survive in, especially back when life was evolving. I mean, it was actually much rougher than it is now. We have a, a few tsunamis now and a few hurricanes and volcanoes. Well, life back then was infinitely more treacherous with much more severe hurricanes and tsunamis, and it wasn't easy. And so you had to be pretty ingenious 
to survive, and you didn't want to waste things. And so these colonies found, quite naturally, that the precipitated calcium that was adjacent to them could be used as protection, as a, as a structure to protect themselves. Well, and so perhaps initially some of them spitting out this calcium, it smothered them. They died in their own calcium, but every now and then one survived where they ended up spitting out the calcium in a way that protected them. Exactly, and this is really kind of the leading theory of how shells evolved, that the shells didn't just happen from the ocean, they actually emanated from within, <laughs> that, the, that the colony of cells would excrete the calcium, would precipitate, form a nice protective shell-like layer that then became part of the organism. Well, and, and here in this picture of the bone cell, it has that look of spitting out calcium in a very specialized way. Hmm. It's, it's an organized way to spit it out, but the center stays hollow. It's almost like a reminder of that initial creature that wanted to get the calcium out of it in a way that was not going to hurt it and might even help it. Yeah, all life is incompatible with high calcium. There are reasons for that. Well, if calcium is so bad, why does a cell let it into itself in the first place? Well, it has no choice. <laughs> for that matter, I mean, calcium is, is one of the common elements uh, that surrounds the world, and so there, there will be calcium. But calcium has advantages too. It isn't a matter of just getting rid of it and not wanting to ever see it again. It, it can form a very hard structure, you know, calcium carbonate, uh, and, and you can use that hardness for protection. But is that why cells let it in? I mean, there's things that cells say, I don't ever want this in and I'm going to keep it out. Why do cells let calcium in? Is it helpful in some way to have it inside the cell? Calcium is used in, in, in many different chemical processes. One of the major uh, chemical processes that calcium is used in is, is, a, is a signal. It's kind of an intermediary hormonal signal. So when a hormone tells a cell what to do, it doesn't tell it directly. It usually kind of knocks on the door of the cell and says, I'm here. And the cell then has to hear the doorbell. And just like somebody coming to the door in your home, it'll ring the doorbell, and then wires will take it to a bell and allow you to hear it, and you know something's happening. Uh, you have maybe a delivery. Maybe the, the mailman is here. Maybe UPS came to deliver a package uh, that's quite important. It, it delivered a, hard, a new hard drive for your computer, and if you don't pick it up, then you know, you're, you're out of luck uh, in, in, in doing your further work. What are calcium's major uses? is as a messenger that when a hormone arrives at your cell, a little trickle of calcium is released, which then sets off a cascade of chemical reactions with calcium being involved in most of those that then go to the nucleus of the cell, to the genes, and tell certain genes to be read so that the message from a particular hormone can tell the cell what to do. That's how it works. And so it's important for the proper concentration of calcium to be there so that the message can get across. Well, I'm picturing it or imagining it as the sound of a doorbell ringing discreetly to let the whole cell know, here comes the message. 
And if there's too much calcium, it'd be like a thousand doorbells all ringing at once. Yeah, or a rock band playing inside the house. The doorbell rings, and it sounds like part of the music. And you have no idea that somebody's at the door, and so you don't answer it. Okay, so all of these are reasons why it's important to clear the calcium out after it's done its job to get the doorbell rung. Yeah, and, and cells have very intricate ways to make sure that the calcium kind of remains silent you know, or you know, very low concentration of calcium until it's needed. So the two major mechanisms are, number one, we're going to extrude calcium from the cell to keep the intracellular calcium really low, and then the calcium that is that remains in the cell gets sequestered in a, in, a, in, a, in a membrane complex called the endoplasmic reticulum, you know, so that that calcium which isn't excreted is sequestered so that the space inside the cell and the cytoplasm has an extremely low calcium concentration. The intra to extracellular calcium concentration, uh, that gradient, is greater than any other mineral any other chemical really in the body. It takes a lot of energy to maintain that gradient. So our cells have a whole bunch of sump pumps that keep pumping the calcium out because the cell says, we don't need too much calcium. We need to keep it cleared out of here. Oh, we're going to die if we don't do that. Exactly. Well, and so here I see it in these pictures of these bone cells that it looks like the calcium got spit out in a very organized way and there's this kind of hole in the middle each time. And we've been talking about seashells, but then we go to us where our shells are not on the outside, they're on the inside. Mm. And that's interesting because I gather that the ability to make bone coincides evolutionarily with the hormone leptin. It apparently does. You can probably educate me a lot more on that even, uh, on, on why that might be so, because I'm not sure. I know that what occurred, and it had to do with, with fat burning also, the ability to burn fat, which is leptin is critical for. And taking our story a little bit further about shellfish and, and, and shelled organisms, in the ocean, you don't have to withstand gravity. You know, you're pretty weightless. And so you don't need rigidity. You need protection more than rigidity. The shells weren't there to be necessarily rigid and to stand up against gravity. The shells there were for protection almost entirely. Some of it actually were used then as weapons, <laughs> you know, spikes also sometimes for protection, but also as weapons to be able to uh, get prey. Swordfish. Yeah, swordfish and things like that, right. Uh, and teeth <laughs> in, in general, uh, which is a, kind of an offshoot of bone. But as we went from the oceans to land, as we sought different, you know, niches for different organisms and species, the environment changed quite a bit. Certainly one of the big changes as we left the ocean is that we encountered gravity. <laughs> it's always been a rule in evolution that bigness affords protection. It's much easier to get eaten if you're little than if you're big. The big eat the little, not the other way around. For animals to grow on land, they had to become more rigid. And a distinction really has to be recognized between rigidity and strength. Okay, the two are not the same at all. Putting calcium or kind of internalizing our 
external shells, which is a relatively easy thing to do. We already had bones, sort of, only we were using it as shells on the exterior to make bone. We just had to bring it inside. And that allowed us greater rigidity so that we could then grow bigger and stand up and become mobile against gravity. Well, you're making me think that perhaps our internal bones have a little different structure than shells because shells can be just these hard, concrete things. Mm. But our bones have to be able to move with us. Most shelled creatures, they just stay put. And so their bones are just dealing with weight and impact. They aren't dealing with having to flex. They basically weren't dealing with having to be strong. They just had to be rigid. And they didn't even have to be alive. They were just the walls of the fortress. Exactly. And that brings us into a philosophical argument or discussion, really, on what life and death is, because all life really is mostly dead. (laughs) You you can't really distinguish between the two. But our bones inside of us are a little bit more alive than the shells outside. They're definitely more alive than the shells that we see in shellfish. The live part confers the strength, and that part doesn't have to do with calcium. There's some pictures in this book that show some clues because it shows a picture where in some of those holes that go through bones, there's these things called osteoclasts and osteoblasts. There's kind of little scrubber things Mm. that are alive that go through and they either chew up old bone or they get room to make new bone cells that can spit out calcium again. Mm. It's like there's these little Pac-Man going through the bones, scrubbing and cleaning it out and And I don't think that happens in seashells, but it happens in our bones. Mm. You bet. We have living architects in our bones that model and remodel our bones, that make the bones that the shape that they're in so that they can be much more conducive to mobility and joints and strength. So we have cells that actually eat up bone, like a sculpture. You're taking a big lump of clay and taking away some of that clay to make a particular shape. Uh, and those are the osteoclasts. Clasts like clear away, C yeah. for clear away. Mm-hmm. And then we have another type of cell that also make a sculpture, but by adding clay, you might say, you know, in this case it's not clay, uh, in this case actually it's protein. So we have osteoblasts that make bone, but not by putting down calcium, but by putting down protein. Okay, so osteoblasts be for build the bone. (laughs) Yeah. The osteoclasts and the osteoblasts model the bone. So they take like a piece of clay and they make a sculpture out of it, which we know as a femur or a humerus, (laughs) you know, a particular bone uh, such that it can uh, perform a particular function in the body, be an arm, be a leg, have a joint so that it can be mobile and convey strength. What is protein doing in there, though? Why not just make it be calcium? That's a great question, and I think it's the question that goes to the heart of the fallacy and myth of how we're treating osteoporosis. One has to distinguish between rigidity and strength. They are not the same thing at all, and they're mediated by totally different mechanisms. The strength is mediated more by flexibility, and the strength is mediated by the protein content of the bone, 
just like your muscles are strong, you, you do nice strong muscles. The protein is what conveys strength and flexibility. So you have a green stem of a, of a tree. It's bendable. And it's going to survive a hurricane with a higher probability than an older, rigid oak tree that might be much thicker. And if you took an x-ray of it, you would say, oh, this is much thicker. That means it must be stronger, and yet the hurricane took it out like it was a kindling. You know, I was hiking recently and saw some people fly fishing. They do these wonderful bends of their rods. It's just gorgeous to watch the string in the rod just bend and flex. I think that those rods are probably hollow, and I think that they're made of something that has some fibers that can bend and flex. I don't think that those rods are made strong because they're made of thin pieces of stone. I think that they wouldn't work very well then. No, and if they were made rigid, they would crack with any type of pressure. So you'll see all fishing rods being flexible. The more flexible, the better. And that way, they're much stronger and they don't fracture under pressure. Fracture under pressure. That's not what we want to have happen to any bone. No, that's not what we want to happen, but that is what happens. It will happen even more, or to a greater extent, if you have more calcium than the bone should have and less protein. So you can have, for instance, a six-month-old. And I remember we did this in medical school. We took a, a, uh, a nice little six-month-old infant who at least didn't say we couldn't do this. And the medical students were able to bend the forearm of, of this child, who, by the way, liked the attention. It doesn't hurt. But you could, I mean, very visually see that the forearm uh, bent considerably. And it was a very strong bone. And that six-month-old had stronger bones than I have. And I think I've got pretty strong bones. And the reason was because of the flexibility. And yet, if you did the test for osteoporosis... You know, I just recently had one because I'm at that age where I'm supposed to. Where, they, where you measure the, the, the mineralization of the bone is what they do. They measure the calcium content, not the protein content. They do not measure the protein content of bone when you go for a test for osteoporosis, when you have a bone scan. Calcium content, however, does not reflect on strength. Well, after I was done with my bone scan, I've got a fairly light frame. I don't have very big bones. They said that I wasn't osteoporotic, but I was pretty close. And I said, hmm, what would that mean? Is it because I have a light bone frame? And I was told, no, you just don't have that much calcium in your bones. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm at the age where I will be probably starting into menopause at some point, they said it's going to get worse. And if they compared your bone to that of a six-month-old, they'd find it was much closer than if they compared somebody who had a so-called good bone scan study and had less osteoporosis, supposedly, to a six-month-old, those bones would look much different. In other words, if you did a bone scan on a six-month-old, it would look like the worst case of osteoporosis ever recorded because their bones haven't calcified very much, which is why they're flexible and which is why they can actually maintain themselves with all the falling that <laughs> six-month-olds are doing. They're flexible. They're not going to break. They're much harder to break than somebody who had just a perfect bone scan study. Well, if my bones ever get 
thin enough and lacking of calcium enough, I'll be told to take a drug that's called a bis something something something. Mm, Fosamax is mm-hmm. what a bisphosphonate, which is designed to make sure that my bones will look really good on a calcium bone scan. Virtually all of the medical treatments right now for osteoporosis do so by inhibiting osteoclasts. Okay, I'm looking at this picture here in this book, which shows this very elegant hole in the middle of a bone. And this little, it looks, it really does look like a little scrubber that you'd use on a pan to get the messy stuff off of a pan where you'd burn things on it. And it's scrubbing away. And these drugs take all of those little scrubbers and keep them from scrubbing. Yeah, it gives you a very false sense of security. So what you're doing then is you're inhibiting a very vital part of bone physiology, which is to get rid of old, damaged, brittle bone and replace it with new, flexible bone. So that's why we have both osteoclasts and osteoblasts that are active throughout our life, not just when the bone is being formed as we're a fetus, but after we're alive up until so-called old age. We have very active osteoblasts and very active osteoclasts, and we need both of them for healthy bone. We need the osteoclasts to break down our old bone so that it can be replaced with newer, fresher, stronger, more flexible bone. And that means bone that isn't just calcium. It has protein in it. It has other minerals in it. It has a live, active process, so it's bendy. So it's bendy and so that even the calcium has something to stick to. If you just had calcium, which is basically what they're causing you to do by taking away osteoclasts and by not paying attention to the processes that allow protein to actually build up in bone, and which is a totally separate story on how you get, cal- how do you, how you get protein into your bone. If you are just concerned about calcium, which is a medical profession right now, try taking calcium carbonate or calcium phosphate or any type of calcium you want and making a bone out of it. Take that dust and squeeze it together and make bone out of it. And what happens when you let go? It's like sand. Okay? And even if you could squeeze it together, I could just flick it with my finger and it would fracture all over the place. It would be like fresh, like glass, like, like silica, very much like silica carbonate. X-ray technologists, uh, radiologists, will tell you that patients who are on these drugs who fracture their bones have a different structure of that fracture. It's a much more severe fracture. No longer will you get a so-called green stick fracture, which looks just like that. If you take a green stick, a green twig that we are talking about before, and you bend it enough that it breaks, it's a little fine break in the middle, and you really don't have to do anything to it. It'll just heal itself. It won't be in a bunch of pieces. I have a friend who... Her lovely Weimaraner dog mm. is known for being clumsy. The dog's name was Grace. <laughs> and, a good and, name for a clumsy dog. Yep. <laughs> and so Grace was following her down the stairs and got clumsy and walked in front of her. And she fell down the last stair. And her ankle was shattered like if you dropped a teacup mm-hmm. on a marble floor. Right. It took a long time to heal a lot, a lot of pieces. Right. And that's what happens in a bone that doesn't have proper protein function, it doesn't have proper osteoblastic function, where you've inhibited the osteoclasts 
to get rid of that brittle bone. In other words, all medical treatment right now for osteoporosis, whether it be taking estrogen, whether it be taking Fosamax or any of the other uh, the injectable drugs now that they're giving that will last for six months that have all sorts of side effects that you can't do anything about because it's going to last in your body for six months once you've taken it, but that cost $2,000 or something, some ridiculous amount of money that you'll be out, all work the same way by inhibiting osteoclastic activity so that you cannot reduce the brittleness of your bone. Your bones become thicker. They look great on an x-ray, but they're extremely brittle, and if you do fracture them, they fracture like glass. Well, so one thing that happens is if somebody's lost calcium in their bones, then it is the case that just sheer weight, they aren't able to carry as much weight on their bones, um, that pelvises and spines can start to kind of compress because there isn't enough stuff to make the bone be able to hold just a steady pressure on it. Mm -hmm. And what I've heard is that somebody who has that kind of weakness, it, it does help to inject in some cement, some, some calcium in some way. Um, well, the cement actually is the protein. The calcium would be like the bricks. Well, that's right. If you have just a whole bunch of just the sandy stuff, it takes the glue to make it be concrete. Yeah. And you're saying that the protein is kind of like the glue. Well, the protein actually has the glue. There are certain types of proteins called GLA proteins that essentially glue the calcium to it so the calcium has something to stick to. And that's what, uh, for instance, vitamin K uh, is necessary for. So we need vitamin K to increase the quantity of a certain protein called GLA proteins that allow calcium and magnesium and other minerals to actually stick to that bone. But Ron Rosedale, there's heart disease. And everybody knows that vitamin K is a vitamin that makes your blood more, if you're using a blood thinner, to have a lot of vitamin K in your blood. Yeah, that's why they, they say that uh, in, in many heart patients and many people that are taking blood thinners, they'll go to the extent not only not to take vitamin K, but to not eat green vegetables anymore. They say, I don't eat green vegetables because we don't want you to have vitamin K. That would be horrible because they've got heart disease, and they have a lot of times heart disease because they have too much calcium in their arteries, and they have too much calcium in their arteries, not because they're taking too much calcium, but because the calcium doesn't know where to go you'll find that those people who have lots of calcium in their arteries also have osteoporosis. It's almost a one-to-one -one correlation. So somebody can have calcium blockages in their arteries. They can have arthritis, all things with too much calcium in the wrong place, and they can still have thin bones? They generally do. And then they'll be told then to take more calcium, even though the calcium is going in their arteries and the calcium is going in their gallbladder and the calcium is going in their kidneys and all the wrong places they're told to take you know, at least two grams of calcium a day, uh, even though it's well documented that the, the calcium physiology is totally messed up. The body has no idea what to do with that calcium anymore. More of it is going to go in their arteries. More of it's going to go in the kidneys. More of it's going to go in your gallbladder. Some of it, almost by default, is going to end up in your bones because that's where we put excess calcium. That's one of the reasons we put it there is because we're trying to get it out of our cells and we have to put it somewhere. It would be great if it could stick in our bones because then we can take something that's harmful actually to the cells and give it some use. The use isn't, however, to make strong bones. That's a misnomer. It's a misconception, I should say. The use is to give the bones rigidity. The strength, again, is conferred by the protein. But if we only had protein, which would essentially be cartilage, 
If our bones were 100% made of cartilage, if we, if we retained our six-month-old bones into adulthood, for instance, we'd still have really strong bones, maybe stronger than they are now, but we'd be like Gumby dolls. As we tried to grow up and become five feet or six feet tall, we would just bend over. We wouldn't have enough rigidity to withstand gravity. And so we put minerals into our bone to make them more rigid, not to make them more strong, so that they'll remain straight and allow us to walk upright. Well, minerals like calcium, a little bit of magnesium, some other Boron, minerals. Boron, silicon, I mean, there's a lot of minerals that go into our bone, not just calcium. But like anything else, health, I think we've talked about this in the past numerous times, health is not in the parts. It's in the instructions given to the parts. Well, so in us talking here, you've answered my first two mysteries, and it sounds like it was no surprise to you that calcium supplements are now being associated with an increased risk of heart attacks. That's more and more documented as it's shown as a small risk, but there is a risk there, and you're going, well, of course. Well, there's even a greater risk. It's been shown, it was shown 15 years ago by Swedish researchers that people who had high normal serum calcium levels had a much higher rate of mortality. You know, so if you really want to use, I think, a, a better index of health, which is mortality, your mortality goes up uh, if your serum calcium goes up. And so there that is with calcium supplements, high levels of calcium in the blood, maybe not such a great thing. The other question I had that I think you've answered is that drugs designed to strengthen bones in some cases lead to an increased risk of bone fractures, especially in the pelvis and in the long bones of the legs, that would make some sense because those are areas which need to flex. Mm. And if what's happening is that the supplements are keeping the osteoclast from clearing out the old bone. The old dry, brittle bone. So the medications being used right now for osteoporosis are inducing in people really dry, brittle bones. Very, very susceptible to severe multiple fractures, as you mentioned, like glass or like a teacup breaking in multiple pieces that are very difficult, certainly almost impossible for the body to heal itself, that if it's going to heal, it's going to require surgery and multiple pins and most of the time won't be able to mend properly because the tools to mend bone and the ability to manufacture protein are being impaired by the treatment. So the treatment, once again, is actually becoming the disease. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go through a quick list of the things that help bones and don't, and then we'll get to this really cool stuff about how hormones influence the health of bones and how bones influence the health of hormones. Perfect. And, and so the quick list would be, um, if somebody takes a, non-steroid, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to reduce pain, Will that improve bone strength or hurt it? Oh, it'll hurt it, yeah, for sure. 